Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. It only takes a little bit of historical awareness to be aware how frequently and prominently the meaning of the Lord's Supper has been a debate among Christians of various stripes. This was especially the case after the Reformation when several branches of the New Reformed movement interpreted the mode of Christ's presence in the Supper quite differently. We're perhaps a bit less at each other's throats these days about the technicality and metaphysics of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but it is also likely the case that many of us tacitly encounter the Supper as something that is a bit odd. Uh, Of course, we we do it, uh, but it is also probably fair to say that we find it an intuitively peculiar practice. What's the significance of eating this bread and drinking this wine together? And of course, we have several answers to this, remembrance, you know, the presence of Christ, the unity of Christians, etc. And maybe those understandings do shape our conscious experience of the supper, but I'd still wager that even with all those explanations, we probably still have, have the capacity to step back and find the whole exercise just a little bit strange for modern people. Uh, probably for those converting to Christianity from the outside, it is one of the less intuitively, yeah, I get why we do that kinds of practices. And as it turns out, we're not alone in this. Christian and non-Christian historians of first century religion have spent an enormous amount of ink trying to understand the background and development of the Christian Eucharist. With me today is Dr. Matthew Colvin, who is a presbyter in the Reformed Episcopal Church and has a PhD in classics from Cornell University. Dr. Colvin has recently penned a very stimulating volume, The Lost Supper, Revisiting Passover and the Origins of the Eucharist. This is a work of tremendous detail and scholarship, and and Matthew has graciously agreed to come talk to us about it. Not only does it provide some wonderful insight into many tricky New Testament texts, Dr. Colvin helpfully relates his conclusions to post-New Testament theological debates about the Supper, illuminating where many of our interpretations have perhaps taken a wrong turn. So first things first, Matthew, thank you for joining us on the program today. It's a joy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, my my pleasure. You know, I, I think it's always uh, illuminating and interesting to hear why people take on the projects that they do. And so, you know, if you would tell us why this became a research project of interest to you and what's at, what's at stake for you in it. Well, I made the mistake of marrying a Jewish lady. Um, and I did that while I was a PhD student in Greek. And so I was invited to a Passover Seder and I was sitting through it and all these Hebrew prayers were washing over me, my, my uncircumcised Gentile head. And I, <laughs> I, I didn't understand a word of it except for one word that I heard it. Afi Coleman. I said, wait a minute, that's, that's a Greek word, surely. And, and uh, several months later, after doing some research, I discovered I wasn't the only person who thought it was a Greek word. Um, and, and so that, that got me on the track of David Dalbis and uh, Robert Eisler's hypothesis about um, the origins of the Eucharist and the meaning of the Last Supper in terms of the Passover um, and antecedent rituals. Um, and it has been a 17-year journey of researching, learning Hebrew, not learning Aramaic, but investigating Aramaic. Um, and, and becoming familiar as a classicist with this entire world of, of first century Judaism and effort to understand something, as you say, that I'd been doing since I was a child, right? Uh, right. Taking a little supper and not 
you know, eventually you reach a certain point and you say, wait a minute, what are we doing? And why, why do we say these words? And why do we use these elements? And what's the Jewish background of this? So that was the, that was the impetus for it. Yeah, and, and speaking of uh, the kind of the Jewish element here, one of, one of the debates that is sort of a background to your own work is the debate over really how to interpret the words and actions of Jesus. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know a, a little bit about that debate, but just for our listeners, can, can you briefly tell, tell, uh, tell us about the, the third quest for the historical Jesus and how it helps us frame our quest for the historical origins of the Eucharist? Sure. Um, I think I got into Jesus studies by discovering N.T. Wright at the same time that I discovered David Dalby and beginning to read, read these scholars, Wright, Dunn, Sanders, and so forth. Not exclusively New Perspective scholars, but it was the New Perspective that brought me into it. Um, and, but not so much the Pauline side of it. It was really Jesus's work. I'm sorry, uh, uh, N.T. Wright's work on Jesus uh, that got me interested in thinking about Jesus historically, um, mm. particularly his insistence that there should not be a division between the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history. Uh, and it was, it was Jesus and the victory of God that sort of shook, shook my world. Um, I, I didn't have to give up the things that I believed as a Christian. I was a Presbyterian in the PCA at the time. And suddenly I had all these more vivid historical um, understandings of what Jesus was saying and doing. Um, and so when, when we come to Jesus celebrating the last, his last Passover with his disciples, the reports that we have in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians are full of the sort of detail that characterizes eyewitness reports from participants in a very Jewish ritual meal. And, and yet there are scholars who want to claim that the gospel reports of the Last Supper are fabrications or retrojections of the early church's practice, uh, that they made up this legend about Jesus doing things that they actually do, um, designed to address the early church's concerns and, and have nothing really much to do with the historical Jesus's questions and concerns and the sorts of debates that he was having with his Jewish contemporaries. And, and so I want to say as strongly as I can that that's, that's an utterly unacceptable solution. And it falsifies the nature of the Gospels as, as historical documents. Um, and it, we can do better as Christians, seeking to follow Jesus, um, and as historians, seeking to know the truth about what Jesus said and did. Um, I think the third quest offers us uh, a way forward. And as N.T. Wright likes to say, is it really Jesus we would like to know and follow, or would we prefer an idol huh. of our own making? <laughs> right. And, and as I understand it, the, the, the third quest is a sort of, it's an attempt, uh, and you can, you, can, you can help me out here. It's an attempt to put Jesus in the, it's an attempt to interpret the words and actions of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus over against a, a Jewish context, as opposed to maybe some, some ways that were popular for the previous century of scholarship, to sort of see Jesus in the context of, uh, you know, at, at one point it would have been Hellenistic, you know, sort of mystery religions. And then if you, if you sort of see Christianity against that backdrop, I, I'm guessing you see the Eucharist as, you know, one of these sort of mystery religion sort of uh, 
uh, mystery religion, uh, uh, you know, ceremonies or something like this. Yeah, those so two, the things, two things occur to me that you, you prompt me with, with that comment. Um, one is the, the dominance of German New Testament scholarship in the, the 19th century and early years of the 20th century. Um, and they had real problems with the whole idea of Jesus as Jewish, um, that they wanted to see him sort of in conflict with Judaism, mm-hmm. um, not really Jewish. And obviously the, the third quest has really rejected that. Um, Jesus is, is a first century Jew and he needs to be understood in first century Jewish terms or we're not gonna understand him at all. Um, the second thing, right. you, you mentioned mystery religions. Um, I remember my, my first graduate seminar at Cornell was, was on Greek religions and we had to read Jane Harrison um, and, and Walter Burkert and these, these scholars explaining how does, how does Greek initiation work? And we put you in a pit and we sacrifice a pig over you and, or we lead you blindfolded into the, sac- into the, the sanctuary of Demeter at Eleusis and show you whatever it is they show you, a piece of corn or something. Um, so it's a, it's a religion of initiation with, that operates with decnumina and, and initiation mysteries. And there's been quite a lot of scholarship trying to approach the Eucharist that way. Um, I, I think it, it influenced some... Uh, uh, some of the work of Jeremias, Joachim Jeremias and his excellent Eucharistic mm. words of Jesus, nonetheless frames the whole thing as this Eucharistic mystery uh, that we don't show outsiders. We don't tell them what Jesus said at the Last Supper. Um, and, and so when Jeremias comes to try to interpret the words, this is my body or this is my blood, he kind of scratches his head over and says, I, I don't know what it means. It's, it's not comprehensible and it must be incomprehensible because Jesus shared this secret explanation at his Passover discourse with his disciples and the gospel writers have carefully snipped that out in order to continue to conceal the mystery from us. Oh, right. And, uh, and that's just not very plausible. And I think it's, right. it's an inappropriate influence of Greek mystery religion scholarship. That, uh, that actually helps contextualize then this next question. Uh, you've mentioned one of these names already, but, you're, but your research in particular attempts to recover the work of two 20th century scholars, Robert Eisler and David uh, uh, Daub. Is that how you pronounce it? I, I think it's uh, a sounded E, so Daube. Yeah. <laughs> Daube, okay. Uh, can, can you briefly describe what their central claim was and how it, different, uh, and how, uh, it, it differs from the hypotheses that were and maybe still are on the table. I suppose we've already talked about some of those hypotheses, but yeah, what were yeah. their central claim, basically? Sure. Um, part of the delight of this project for me was familiarizing myself with these two scholars, because they are a pair of characters. Uh, mm. Both of their lives were interrupted and traumatized by, by Hitler and, and the Nazi party and the whole World War II. Dalbe ended his days as an exile uh, from his native Germany. Um, taught at Oxford for a long time, and then um, at Cal, California, Berkeley in the States um, into, into his 80s. And um, Eisler, for his part, converted from Judaism to Christianity in order to marry uh, a famous painter's daughter. Uh, it wasn't a genuine conversion. Um, and, and then found himself kind of stuck. Uh, Jews didn't want him, and Christians didn't want him because he was Jewish. Um, and, and he was independently wealthy, uh, and that always and, helps. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he's kind of outside the guild, 
Dobby is outside mm-hmm. the guild. He's a, he's a scholar of the history of law. Eisler is outside the guild. He's uh, a maniac, a difficult man, um, writing, writing books on crazy subjects like werewolves and the history of bees. Um, <laughs> and so he's, he's a sort of polymath, grabbing things from all over the place um, and synthesizing them into uh, sometimes very implausible explanations where your jaw sort of drops at the erudition of it, but it isn't necessarily the, the best explanation historically. Um, if you look for explanation, if you look up David Dalbert at Last Supper, um, Afi Coleman, one of the things you'll find on the web these days is a bunch of websites from Messianic Judaism um, who are mm. eager, to, eager to interpret the Passover and all kinds of other Jewish rituals and meals and um, you know, holidays and customs uh, in, terms of, in terms of Jesus, to connect them with Jesus. And it's a movement that's is very focused on the Jewishness of it all. Uh, and in my opinions, often in ways that the Apostle Paul would not be too thrilled about. Um, that, mm-hmm. you know, they're focusing on many of the things that, that Paul would say are rubbish or scubalon. Um, and they've yeah. elevated, them, elevated them to a level that they shouldn't have. Uh, and the scholarship of that movement is often quite sketchy. Um, but the central thesis... Dub is a world-class scholar, and he, he's the man, maybe more than anyone else, who gave rise to um, the acceptability of the term New Testament Judaism. Right? Um, mm. and, he, and he pioneers some of the uh, use of the rabbis, use of rabbinical sources as evidence for some things that were still, uh, or that, that, had, that were still being taught, that had already been taught at the time of Jesus, or were operative in the first century. Um, so those two scholars are characters and very interesting. The central thesis uh, that Dalbert presents in the 1960s is that Jesus was taking up an already understood and known piece of bread that everybody knew was connected with the Messiah, and he was identifying himself in terms of it. Um, Eisler had presented that earlier, but Eisler had committed some scholarly mistakes. He had said, um, we can go raid the whole medieval Jewish Passover Seder uh, with its sequence of cups, uh, four named cups, and and with its uh, specified and named pieces of unleavened bread, matzah, um, and we can find that all operative in the New Testament. Dalva said, no, not really. Um, we, we don't have enough evidence that any of that stuff was being done. But the central claim that Jesus could not have both taken up a piece of bread and identified it with the Messiah and then also identified it with himself, that seems to me to be a good starting point. Um, this is a, something that he did at the Last Supper, and his disciples don't seem to have been puzzled by it. Right? They seem to have understood what he meant. Later on the road to Emmaus, he he is known to some of his disciples in the breaking of the bread. They don't scratch their head and act puzzled the way they do on many other occasions. Right? Peter uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Lord, it's good for us to be here. He didn't know what he was saying. Right? Um, or, or the disciples in the boat, beware of the, the leaven of the, the Pharisees in Herod. Uh, is, is it because we forgot to bring bread? Right? And then they were clueless. Right? And they tell us when they're clueless, but they don't say anything about being clueless at the, at the Last Supper. So that's the central claim uh, that Dalbert is making. 
Right. Uh, just for, for our listeners, actually, um, uh, I was going to ask this a little later, but I think it's, it's more relevant uh, based mm-hmm. upon what you just said, and that is, uh, tell us what you think Jesus is doing in the Last Supper then. What, what, if we could sort of expand that for people who are kind of uninitiated to this identification with the kind of the mess, this bread that has messianic significance, uh, fill that out a little bit yeah. for us. Okay, so on Daba's view and mine, the main thing that Jesus is doing is identifying himself as Israel's Messiah. And he's doing so within the context of a ritual meal that Second Temple Jews already used to inscribe themselves in the story of Israel from the Old Testament. And second, I want to say he's, he's making this self-identification as the Messiah in an indirect manner. And this is distinctive of his practice. Jesus doesn't don a sandwich board and walk around with a sign on him saying, I'm the Messiah. As we're told in John's gospel, Jesus doesn't testify about himself. Anybody who testifies about himself and says, I'm the Messiah, it's ipso facto untrue. It's inconsistent with the behavior and character of the true Messiah. It's false messiahs. Judas of Galilee or someone like that who boasts about his status or says he's someone great and uses it as a thing to be grasped. Jesus's approach is always to identify himself in terms of Israel's stories and Israel's symbols for those who know that story and those who know the symbols and have ears to hear. So when he's faced with huge questions like, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? It's the Sanhedrin asks him. Uh, or are you a king from Pilate? He tends to answer those questions with a peculiarly Jewish idiom. You have said it. Right? It, it doesn't mean, yes, I am. Right? It's, a, it's a non-denial. Right? Yeah, you're right about that. But it came out, it came out of your mouth. Right? Yeah. Right? It came out of your mouth, not mine. Right. So, and it's a Jewish idiom. Amata in Hebrew. Right? You have said it. And it's striking because it's the same idiom that Jesus uses for other inappropriate questions that he doesn't want to answer with a straight yes or no. Like when Judas asks him, is it I, Lord, who am going to betray you? Jesus doesn't say, bingo, go do it. And he says, you have said it. And the other thing that he does with Judas on that inappropriate question, he answers it in a second way. Lord, who is it going to betray you? Is it I? Is it I? He sets up a piece of bread and gives it a meaning, stipulated meaning for his disciples to understand, and then hands it to Judas. So his disciples can put two and two together, and they can draw the conclusion that he wants them to draw. And it avoids a direct and public accusation while still making the point for all the disciples who are in the know about the meaning of that morsel that he handed to Judas. And in exactly the same way, Jesus identifies himself with a piece of bread that has a known meaning to his disciples. So that's the, that's the first two things. Right? It's within this ritual context of a meal that Second Temple Jews already know. And secondly, it's, this, it's typical of Jesus's indirection, right? his, his indirect approach to identifying himself. The third thing he's doing is using the ritual meal to involve his disciples in the events of his death and resurrection that are about to happen. And he does this in exactly the same way that the Passover involved every subsequent generation of Jews in the events of the original Exodus. We need to take very seriously the fact that the Jews in the first century 
had ways in, of thinking and talking. They had ways of understanding how their meal at Passover worked. And they didn't talk about it the way Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or even the Apostolic Fathers do. There was such a thing as first century Jewish sacramentology, and Jesus did not invent it. That's one of David Dauber's most brilliant insights and a huge methodological correction that ought to inform our thinking about how the Eucharist works. The Passover was instituted in advance of the events that sealed it to every Israelite who later celebrated it. Right? In advance of the events, right? that mm -hmm. Moses, with God's command, tells them, this is what you got to do. And then the deliverance from Egypt happens. The angel of death passes through, passes over all the houses with the blood on their doorposts and lentils. And then thereafter, they celebrate Passovers in the land, right? Retrospective Passovers. Just so, Jesus sets up the bread and wine in connection with his death and resurrection before they happen. And then he sets up a ritual meal for his disciples to continue celebrating it after those events. There's a lot more that we could say about how this works, but central to it all, is that we ought to think about it, how it works, the way Jews thought about how Passover operated. And so it's really important for us to turn to Jewish literature, the Targums, the rabbinic literature, the Mishnah and the Talmuds, and to see how they discuss the Passover. Not that everything they say should be taken to be operative in the first century. We don't want to commit anachronisms nor that they accurately reflect everything that Jesus and his disciples were doing. But this is the key. They generally reflect Jewish ways of thinking about how Passover operated. And when we do that, we find that the basic idea is summed up in a, an utterance of probably Paul's teacher, Rabbi Gamaliel, right? Rabbi Gamaliel, who says, every man who partakes of the Passover is bound to regard himself as though he personally had passed out of Egypt. If you're eating this Passover meal, it is as though, just as if, you had personally experienced the events that happened in the generation of Moses. So that's a Jewish way of thinking about it. Notice that it's not a way of thinking about substances and accidents. It doesn't, it doesn't use the apparatus of Aristotle and, and Thomas Aquinas. Um, nor, and we'll talk more about this maybe later, uh, nor does it use um, a sort of cognitive approach. The Passover originally happened, the angel of death passed over those houses while Jews were asleep in bed. I mean, they weren't thinking about it at the time. Mm. Um, and, and, and so there's evidently a Jewish way of approaching this meal um, that is neither um, a matter of transmogrified substances nor a matter of cognitive recollection. Right? Instead, it's a matter of the narrative, the story of Israel's, Israel and their, their God, the events that happened to Israel at the hand of their God. Um, and for us, as we're dealing with the Eucharist, not, not the Passover, um, it's the events that happened to Jesus our Messiah, that we're united to. Um, and you right said at one point, and I, I've struggled in vain to track down where I saw this, um, that the, the sacraments should be celebrated narratively. Right? They have to do 
with the story. They inscribe us in the story. Um, and so that's, I think, is a very Jewish way of approaching how do the sacraments work. Um, it's, it's a way that was available to Jesus that was already operative at the meal that he sat down at with his disciples. And if he wants to change the way the meal is going to work, if he wants to institute a, a new meal that has been depascalized, depassoverized, that's an incredibly difficult job. If you're going to do that, why would you do it at Passover? Right. right. That is not a good plan. <clears throat> right. Uh, that actually, uh, w- one of the questions that comes out of this uh, in terms of uh, if we identify in, in your book, just make such a compelling case that we ought to, if we identify the Passover as sort of the background to the development of Christian Eucharistic practice, one of the questions that comes up is, why then did did Christian Eucharistic practice so quickly develop into uh, a, a weekly or even more frequent observance as opposed to an annual observance? Do you have a, some thoughts on what, what was behind that development? Yeah, um, it is evidently something that needs to be explained. The Passover is an annual ceremony and the Eucharist is, I would say, not just a weekly, but a more than weekly ceremony um, that we see in the, in the New Testament. Uh, that needs explaining. And, and my answer would be, I, don't, I think it's not tied to time. It is tied to the community. Um, very early, we find the book of Acts speaking of Sunday as the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Right? Or even earlier than that, um, the road to Emmaus episode in Luke shows the resurrected Jesus evidently using the bread to identify himself again and in a way that his disciples get. Right? He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Um, and he does that. It's not Passover anymore when, when he's doing it. Right? So uh, there, there's evidently very early and probably underwritten by Jesus himself in his, in his meals mm-hmm. with his disciples. Um, there's warrant for doing it more often and for doing it when the people of Jesus are gathered together. Um, the ones for whom he died, uh, they, they unite themselves to him uh, in this ritual meal that he set up and gave them. So when, when the church is gathered to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ, it was apparently natural for them to do so in the context of a meal. And that meant that it happened more than weekly. Um, you know, there's a lot, that, that's a little bit of a sketchy explanation, right? All I'm saying there is we see that it happened. We see that it happened really early. Um, so it, you know, it's a fact that needs some explaining. I think uh, one of the most interesting books that I, that I read on this topic, uh, there's just a little essay by Oscar Coleman, Essays on the Lord's Supper, um, in which he points out that, uh, I think it's in, in Acts 3 maybe or so, in one of the early chapters of Acts, there's, um, there's a verb, sunaritsomenoi, right? that the disciples were gathered together, and some translations would say when they gathered together, right? It was simply a matter of congregating. But the root of that word is probably from the Greek word house, salt, um, to share a meal with salt. Um, some of our early Eucharistic imagery in, in say, catacomb paintings and elsewhere uh, depicts fish. Um, Jesus shared a meal with fish with his disciples on the shore of the sea. 
Ashby's resurrection. Um, and so it looks like there are reminiscences of salt and fish and other elements besides bread and wine. Not that those that the salt and fish have um, the sort of symbolic weight that uh, the bread and the wine do. Not that they've been singled out by Jesus with words of institution and set up for use this way, but that the early church was preserving um, certain remembered features of meals that they'd had with Jesus. And those meals, are, of course, were beyond just the one last supper. Um, and so mm -hmm. I do think that's, those are helpful um, possible contributing factors to why did the church move to more than weekly? Um, you know, they're gathered about Jesus. That's enough for one, enough warrant, perhaps. Right. That's, that's very helpful. Um, so some of the argument in the book is, 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 uh, you know, as you can tell just from sort of, uh, you know, looking up in some cases, this very obscure vocabulary. And uh, in fact, the thing that kind of tr triggered you toward, toward this project in the first place sounds like a, a vocabulary word you heard uh, during a Seder. Uh, so some of it's pretty technical and depends upon, you know, attempts to uh, kind of discover Aramaisms and this sort of thing behind uh, the New Testament as we have it. Can you describe what that trend is in New Testament scholarship, this attempt to kind of get at the Aramaic behind the Greek and maybe give us an example of where this obviously helps us be better readers of the text, even if the example is not the Eucharist as such? Yeah, I don't know that I would say it is a trend in New Testament scholarship. Um, those of you who are listening who are interested in New Testament studies, if you've ever thought about doing a PhD in New Testament studies, um, it's one of the most daunting things you could ever choose to study. The linguistic requirements are extremely high. You need to know French, you need to know German, you need to know Latin, um, let alone, of course, Greek and Hebrew as the core, and then Aramaic and Ugaritic and maybe a little bit of Akkadian, and, and, and on and on it goes. And few and far between are the men who have the time to actually accumulate all these languages. I don't have all these languages. Um, but... I think it's necessary that it, that it is this way. We have to take seriously the fact that we're dealing with texts that were written by multilingual, polyglot Jews. Right? First century Jews living in Hellenized Palestine. Um, and I think we can find there's been uh, sort of shifts in how do, how do New Testament scholars approach this issue. Um, so the late Maurice Casey, who's uh, he's not a Christian, he's an unbeliever, um, and, and he's, he's got some views that I would rather strongly disagree with. So he wrote one book called um, Is John's Gospel True? And as you know, any title that ends with a question mark can be answered with the word no. Um, <laughs> so his, his book is intended to, to say, no, John, the fourth gospel is this gigantic fabrication, um, a, a retrojection of fathering upon Jesus of the concerns of the early church. Um, and I would send to side much more with Richard Bauckham, who, who says, no, the, first, the fourth gospel is eyewitness testimony and, and written, moreover, mm -hmm. by an eyewitness. Um, but Casey despite all those abhorrent opinions and his broad Ermanish tendencies, um, nonetheless was a, a major advocate of Aramaic behind the Gospels. Now that doesn't mean there's, an, there's a set of Aramaic Gospels and maybe you know, a goat herd will find some in a cave uh, in, right. in Israel one of these days. That doesn't, that's not what we mean. What we mean is 
that we're dealing with Greek texts that have been written by Jews for whom Greek is not their first language. And as Maurice Casey puts it, anybody who's writing not in their first language is going to suffer in whatever degree from what we call linguistic interference. And we see this in the way they use Greek, departing from Greek idiom. And as a classicist, it's, it strikes me in the face. So for instance, you're reading, you're reading the Septuagint, say the, the very first chapter of the Greek Old Testament, um, Genesis 1. And it says, God divided the light from the darkness. Well, normal Greek idiom would work like English. God diakovison, he divided the accusative light from the genitive darkness. And there might be a word from, apo. But the Septuagint, written by Greek-speaking Jews, has this weird construction. God divided between the light and between the darkness. Anameson and anameson. It repeats the preposition in a way that is not good Greek, it's not good English, but it is good Hebrew. Right? It's translated by a Hebrew speaker who's slavishly preserving the grammatical construction of the Hebrew. And this happens very frequently in the New Testament so much so that many evident Hebraisms or Aramaisms um, are missed by scholars who haven't read enough non-Judaic classical Greek to see that, that it's different and weird. Um, so you ever think about the word for Passover in, in the New Testament? Well, it's an, it's an Aramaic word, topaska, right? or the word for the Sabbath. And, in some of the Gospels, it's neuter plural, ta sabata, as though it were a plural neuter noun. Why? Well, because it ends, the Aramaic ended in the determinative ending. The ah means we're talking about the Sabbath, not just any old Sabbath. Um, and, and then it gets brought into Greek this way. Um, early in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century, Gustav Daumann, um, of the Institution Judaicum uh, was a great source for uh, Aramaic studies. Um, one of the, the challenges, you know, he, he, would, he, would, he wrote some books about um, the words of Jesus. You know, what Aramaic can we see behind the utterances that Jesus tells uh, in the Gospels? This can be challenging. For, for me, as a, as a fairly conservative Christian, I'm a member, I'm ordained in the Reformed Episcopal Church, and you're, you're probably in the PCA or other conservative Presbyterianism. It can be a challenge to, to hear this sort of thing. Wait a minute. You're saying that we need to go look at the, he, the, the Aramaic or the Hebrew behind the Greek, but we don't have those. Right? Are you saying that the Greek is not sufficient? Well, we're not saying that the Greek is not inspired. We're not saying that the Greek is not authoritative. We're saying that there's some background that we need in mm -hmm. order to understand it. So when Jesus is arrested, he's brought by Pilate into the praetorium. Okay. What is this word? Well, it's a Latin word that's been borrowed into, into Greek, right? And if you want to know what it means, good luck figuring that out from the pages of the Bible. You're going to need to go right. consult a Latin dictionary and or a Greek dictionary that tells you this is a long word and here's where it comes from. And here's the context culturally for you to know what it means. Um, and, and so that, I think, is what we're doing with, with Aramaic and Hebrew roots behind or, or constructions behind um, the Greek. Um, one of the best insights, I thought, is gleanable from um, Aramaic background 
is precisely concerning the, the crucial words, this is my body. Mm. And you may remember at the, Magda, at the Marburg Disputation, where Luther and Zwingli got, got together to have their cage match, um, <clears throat> Luther was so insistent, as one of my own bishops is, that is means is, right? And Jesus right. didn't say, it's a symbol of my body. Before Bill Clinton, before Bill Clinton right. made this insistence, uh, <laughs> Martin Luther <Yeah>. did. <laughs> it depends on what the meaning of is is, right? You're right. <laughs> And, and, and so this is, you know, this is the, the, the sentence that Luther writes in beer foam on the table in Marburg. And Zwing, poor Zwingli, you know, not, not the best Hebraist, not, doesn't know any Aramaic. He doesn't have an answer to it. But Oikolampadius, who's an, a bystander and watching this debate at the time, Hushstein um, is his German name, um, he knew Aramaic. And I'm sure he was just, oh, Luther, what are you doing? There is no word is in that sentence if you translate it into Aramaic, right? Um, so laying emphasis on this word is uh, is a big mistake, right? Let alone saying is means is. How often is that really true, right? Um, do we usually use the word is to mean is metaphysically identified with in an ontological way? Is that how we use it? <laughs> right. Hardly. All right. but, but this word body, if we look at the Aramaic behind it, it's probably the word goof, right? Goof. Um, and when you, when you put possessive or personal suffixes on the end of this word, say the suffix e, meaning mine, okay? So now it's, it's not just goofy, it's goofy, right? Goofy. Um, <laughs> but goofy, yes, the literal you know, op de la lettre, uh, meaning of goofy would be my body. Okay? But in Aramaic idiom, it means myself. Okay? And so if that's, we don't insist upon this. Right? This is somewhat speculative, as all such retrojections, I'm sorry, retroversions into Aramaic must be speculative. We don't have right. it, so we can't prove that that's what he said. But it seems likely. It makes good sense in the context for Jesus to be saying, this, this piece of Messiah bread that you all know, that you've been eating all your lives to anticipate the Messiah as part of this, the grand sweep of the Passover narrative that you, you live vicariously in your, your feasting. Right? Modern Jews, they, they dip their finger in the wine and drip 10 drops of plagues on their plate to reenact the, uh, the exodus from Egypt. Right. And they spread the um, they spread the, the bitter. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a harosa. It's a it's an apple and horseradish sauce, and and they spread it on their matzah, you know, like water on the bricks. Um, to, we suffered bitterly doing construction projects for Pharaoh. Well, we don't have any evidence that that kind of playing with your food was um, operative in the case of Jesus and his disciples. Um, but we do have testimony that uh, Hillel in the first century BC, right, so before Jesus' time, instructed his disciples, we're going to eat um, the bitter herbs with, in a, in a sort of little sandwich with the unleavened bread, right, so that freedom and slavery are experienced together in the consciousness of Jews who are taking part in the, in the Passover, right, so that's before Jesus. Um, anyway, so we're suggesting that 
when Jesus takes up this piece of bread, this piece of masa that all his disciples already know, and says, this is my body, they don't say, oh, um, your body as opposed to your spirit? A very Cartesian or, or Greek way of thinking about it. Very likely they said, oh, you mean you're the Messiah? which would be consistent right. with the way he identifies himself as the Messiah elsewhere. So Aramaic can be helpful. Um, right. There's some wonderful tools. It's becoming more and more available to us. There's a marvelous tool online, the Comprehensive Aramaic Lexicon, with links to, to the Targums and uh, other Aramaic texts, Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. And we're, we're kind of at this point in New Testament studies where people realize that if you want to make a case about what Aramaic-speaking or Hebrew-speaking first-century Jews meant when they said the things that are reported to us in Greek in the Gospels, you're going to need to appeal to these languages. Right. Um, that's very helpful. And, it, you know, and it can be disorienting because, of course, this is such a, it's such a, you know, uh, looking at the Lord's Supper in that sort of participatory narratival sense is, uh, is different than the way we often think about what we're getting out of it. The word we often focus on, I mean, there's the debate about this is my body, but in uh, uh, at least in American evangelicalism, a word that's focused on a lot is this word remember. Mm -hmm. uh, to, what do you think the word remember is doing here? You know, do this in remembrance of me. And this is, of course, Paul repeats this in, in 1 Corinthians. What do, you, what do you think is going on with the word remember and its significance in the supper? Yeah, uh, I, I would like to suggest that this word needs to be understood not in the cognitive terms that are the first thing we think of in, in Cartesian modernism that we're all swimming around in, but in the way that a first century Jew like Paul would have understood it. So our family just last week, we visited a, a Christian Reformed church right? so in the Dutch tradition. And um, as was the case when we were missionaries in the Philippines, we also attended this delightful Filipino um, reformed church using a, a liturgy very similar to the CRC. And when they do the, the, the Lord's Supper, the instructions to the congregation are eat, drink, remember, and believe. And with that remember command, an emphasis on cognition and memory. But as, as I've said earlier, I don't think the Jews thought about the Passover as working by our thinking about it. And I don't think the Lord's Supper is an edible flashcard, right? That it works mainly by our thinking and, and that a bunch of people eating things together is a sort of ancillary sideshow to, to the main act of, of what's going on in between your ears. Uh, recall again, the original Passover saved Israel from destroying an angel while they were asleep. So within the Reformed tradition, there have been attempts, especially by um, my beloved Reformed Pater communionist friends, to urge that this word remembrance should be understood in terms of God's remembering. Um, it is, after all, not a command. Remember, it says, do this. That's the command, the imperative. Right? Do this. Anamnesin. Right. Uh, do this as my memorial. Okay. Well, whose remembering makes a difference here? Let me think of Cornelius. The angel tells him, your alms and your prayers have come up for a memorial before God. Right. Mm. Um, or that the rainbow in the sky after Noah's flood 
is for a memorial. Um, it, it's not really about you remembering, that your remembering is neither here nor there as far as saving power and efficacy. It's God's remembering that makes a difference. And so some theologians have urged that that's what's going on here. The Eucharist is a, a representation of Christ's sacrifice to God. And there's some aspects of that that are correct. There are others that maybe that we would find troubling, especially when the Eucharist is misunderstood as a re-sacrificing of Christ, um, as it is right. in some, some Roman Catholic writers. But I think the core instinct that it's God's remembering that matters, that's correct. Um, and I'd also point to another verb in 1 Corinthians 11 that has been similarly misunderstood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, katangelete, the Lord's death, until he comes. Well, this verb, angelo, is used in the Septuagint to render Exodus 13's verb, you shall tell your son in that day, you shall tell, right? Higata, higata, right? It's the verb, higad, the verb that hagada comes from, Passover hagada, right? The narrative, the order of prayers and, and songs and other um, you know, rituals that are done, the, the script, as it were, the order of service for um, the Seder that is celebrated to this day. In other words, you, shall, you, sh you proclaim the Lord's death. It's a verb that speaks of the narrative meaning of the Passover salvation. And that's how Paul intends the Eucharist to be to celebrated. The ritual meal is a renovation of the events of Christ's death. Notice he doesn't say the ritual meal is accompanied by an oral recitation of the events. The meal itself, like the Passover before it, is a ritual showing forth of the death. Um, so this is another instance, I think, where thinking about the Hebrew or Aramaic connotations behind the Greek New Testament's diction can help us clarify mm. our thinking about how the Eucharist works. Right. Um, and perhaps this has been implicit in what we've discussed so far, but maybe maybe we could make it even more explicit. What what kinds of pastoral implications do you think this understanding of the supper has uh, for our you know or you know we do this every week or a lot a lot of people do it every week? What's the what what how does that this help us spiritually benefit from the Eucharist? Perhaps let me put it that way. You may think this is a bit of a cop out, but the number one benefit that I think we get from this, and for me it is the main one, is that we now have a more vivid and meaningful understanding of what Jesus was saying and doing to his disciples in the upper room. Right? That's, that's the number one benefit. Mm -hmm. Jesus now is in three dimensions and stands off the page for us a little bit more. Right? Um, secondly, yeah. the corporate, corporate and narrative dimensions of the Passover on this view are much more important than any private or introspective spirituality. We are encouraged by this view to think about ourselves as members of a people, ritually celebrating a meal that unites the people of God to the Messiah and identifies Jesus as the Messiah that we're united to. And, and so that really, this is a big claim, but I think it really renders largely irrelevant many of the debates that have caused so much hostility and tension in Christian history, especially debates like that between Luther and Zwingli, um, or, or the ones that continue today, even in my own um, conservative Anglicanism, over, over so-called real presence. And the mechanics 
of how do the elements get transmogrified or transubstantiated. Um, you know, it, it, it encourages us to, not to traffic in a, in a Greek versus Hebrew dichotomy here, but to, to put aside those medieval categories for trying to understand what happens and to think about it as a, as a first century Jew might have. Um, how, how am I united to Christ's death and resurrection? This, this is something that I'm to understand happened to me. Right? If, if Gamaliel says every Jew who, passed out of, uh, who partakes of the Passover is bound to regard himself as though he personally passed out of Egypt, Paul says the bread which we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Right? Notice he doesn't say the bread which we break is it not the body of Christ. And we got to scratch our heads and wonder how the bread becomes body. What he says is that it is a participation. It's a way of us being involved and sharing in Jesus and the things that happen to him. Um, and so I think it's, it's a great game in coherence. Um, it hangs together perfectly well with the rest, rest of Pauline and, and Jesus's sacrament, uh, sorry, soteriology. Right, um, it, it is Pauline soteriology applied to a ritual meal. Um, salvation is by union with Christ. It's by being joined to Christ in His death and resurrection. That is the core of what salvation is in the New Testament. It would be very surprising if Paul thought that we get some other benefits from the Lord's Supper, um, and it would be right. very consistent if that is in fact what the Lord's Supper is about. And so delving into all the Jewish sources and, and looking at all the Aramaic and Hebrew options behind the Greek and, and coming up with this, um, I think it's tremendously reassuring that we've understood it right. Um, it has the ring of truth to it. Um, and then there's a, this is not a pastoral implication. I know you're asking about pastoral implications, but just sort of another um, scholarly and historical consideration. We have very vivid and, and realistic language from the church fathers. And so I think it's uh, Tertullian talking about Gnostics. They don't, they don't do the supper. They don't observe the Eucharist because they don't believe it is the body and blood of Christ. Right? Well, we need to be able to account for that sort of vividly realistic language. Right? Um, you know, there's the way that I think a lot of the tradition has tended to account for it is to say, aha, this is really a, a transubstantiation, transubstantiation or transmogrification happening. And the whole early church knew it um, and the Gnostics didn't get it or they rejected that, that, that doctrine. And that's why we get people like Irenaeus or, or Tertullian um, faulting them for it and using this very realistic language. Um, and, and I want to say... Well, the very realistic terminology on the part of the church fathers is something we need to be able to explain. We need to be able to, to show how we got from the way the New Testament talks to the way those church fathers talk. And I would submit to you that a view that sees um, the Eucharist operating in the mind of Paul and, and other disciples, um, operating in, in this sort of... Um, narrative and you are involved in the events type of way that gives us the sort of vividness that can underwrite that realistic language from the church fathers um, in a way that um, certain other views 
some of them very excellent. I have a lot of sympathy, for instance, with John Calvin's view that um, in the Eucharist, we ascend into the heavenlies rather than a transformation right. of the elements taking place. The problem is there's not a lot of language in the New Testament about us ascending in the Eucharist. Right? Um, that's not how right. Paul talks in verse Corinthians 11. Um, so uh, it, the difficulty with that sort of language or worse with the sort of cognitive, it works by you thinking about it, um, is that it's very, very difficult to explain the genesis and the origin of this realistic language from the church fathers on that, that sort of view. If that's what Paul and Jesus taught, then how did they go off the veils? Right. right. Who, um, for those who might want to uh, be, would be interested in following up with uh, somebody doing a good history of the Eucharist and the apostolic fathers and in those first several centuries, is there a, is there a scholar you recommend or a work you recommend that treats that, surveys that fairly well and compellingly? Um, well, Darwell Stone um, is helpful. He's an old, older Anglican writer. Uh, I really like uh, Nathaniel Dimmock among um, earlier uh, sort of even evangelical and, and low church Anglican scholars. Um, you know, he, he really goes through the text of the church fathers and, and says, okay, um, Roman Catholic theologians and Bellarmine and so forth have been trying to um, father their Corpus Christi processions and their transubstantiation doctrine um, that they got from Pascasius Vibertus in the um, you know, high medieval period. They're trying to find that in the church fathers. And then he just goes through with a fine tooth comb, all the, all the Greek passages. And, it's copious with footnoted and translated. It's really excellent. So that's what I would commend, like commend to people. Look at, look at Dimmick's, um, Dimmick's treatment of that. Uh, Eucharistic Worship in the English Church is one of, the, one of his books. Uh, I'm trying to remember the other, other titles, but they're escaping me right now. All right. Um, well, this has been very helpful. Um, just as a kind of, kind of final question here then, you know, in your judgment, what ought to be uh, more central in these kinds of debates. You know, this is one topic, but maybe maybe you think this has implications for larger things that we study. Uh, you know, what do, well, another way of asking this, what do sacramental theologians or even New Testament scholars focus on that you consider distraction and what ought we to be focused on? What, what kind of, I guess, you, lessons can we learn from this kind of scholarship? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, first let me say, I'm really tremendously excited. I think it's an interesting time in New Testament studies and in, and in studies of historical sacramentology. Um, it's unfortunate that some are still trying to sort of father their own traditional views on the Eucharist onto the text. Um, and, and sometimes they do this in, in um, ways of uh, very bad philology. Uh, so that I, for instance, I, I talk in the book about one particular Roman Catholic scholar who really wants to find real presence in, in the Bible, wants to get some warrant for it. And, and he appeals to the showbread uh, in the Old Testament, the, the bread that is placed out on a table before, before the Lord, um, because the, the Hebrew term for it is uh, lehem panim, right? Um, and he says, well, panim, literally face, but um, panim can mean presence. So lehem panim means the bread of the presence. Well, no, no. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the bread that is put lifne before the face of God. It doesn't mean God's present in the bread. It means the bread is in the presence of God. Um, so 
you know, on the one hand, I would dissent from that view. On the other hand, I'm delighted that even somebody who's a partisan and trying to find um, their, own, their own doctrine in the text is forced to go to the Hebrew and look right, and try to find sources uh, uh, you know, of Jewish background literature that will help um, prove what they're claiming. Um, another, another scholar is, again, trying to find real presence. Um, and uh, he points to the, the Targums, right, the Aramaic translations of the Old Testament that were read in the synagogues. And um, there's a, a Palestinian Targumic tradition of understanding the manna uh, as you know, how did it come down from heaven? Where is it now? Um, and we see some of this echoed in the New Testament, right? That the, the resurrected Jesus in Revelation promises to give um, his followers to eat, to those who overcome, he will give to eat of the hidden manna, right? So it's, there's, the manna is still there somewhere with God. Um, and so the question arises, can, can the manna tradition, can the way Jews thought about manna in their Aramaic translations that were written in synagogues, can that underwrite a real presence view? So on the one hand, you know, I'm not persuaded by either of those views, but I'm delighted with the methodological shift. We have turned a corner. We are no longer going to be writing Latin words in beer froth on a wooden table in Marburg. We're going to be appealing to Jewish sources and understanding Jesus as he really was as a Jew. And, and that's going to be the criteria, that those will be the criteria by which we evaluate the plausibility of sacramental, sacramentologies that are proposed. Um, if you want to say that Jesus meant this or that Paul meant that, the appeal has to be to the Jewish background. Mm. That's the benefit of the third quest. Right. Well, this has been really helpful. Uh, for those who are listening, I'm talking with Dr. Matthew Colvin, who again has recently written this excellent book, The Lost Supper, Revisiting Passover and the Origins of the Eucharist. Uh, Matthew, thanks again for being with us here today. Uh, and for our listeners, you've been listening to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast. And until next time, we will see you later. Thanks so much. <laughs>